Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Fitter and Faster Coaches Corner. As always, I'm your host, Mike Murray. Today, we have a special edition of Coaches Corner as we near the start of the Tokyo 2021 Olympic Games. We have with me today our Fitter and Faster intern and the associate head coach at Victor Swim Club, Dan Burke. And we have a Fitter and Faster alumni, Tyler Clary, 2012 Olympic gold medalist in the 200 backstroke. Tyler, before we get started today, and before we lean into your advice and your experience in the Olympic Games, I have a number that I want to throw out to you, and I want to see if you recognize it. And that number, my friend, is 28.48. Do you know why 28.48 is a significant number to you? Not off the top of my head, no. <laughs> I, have a, I have a feeling you're going to be telling me, though. <laughs> I am going to tell you, Tyler, 28.48 is the last 50 of your 200-meter back when you broke the Olympic record in London in 2012 to edge Ryan Lochte and wow. get that Olympic gold medal. Let's talk about that last wall, because if our viewers haven't watched it, and if you're a coach who tunes into Coach's Corner every week, like many of you do, it is one of the best last walls. We all know the story of Eric Vent going up against Phelps in that national championship meet uh, in Fort Lauderdale in 2001. I was on the pool deck. Tyler, you were swimming. That was one of the best walls I had ever seen. This wall in an Olympic final was special. Talk to us about that last wall because it's a great segue into what we're talking about today. Well, first and foremost, it was painful. Um, secondly, it was, you know, I don't think there's any doubt about it. That was probably the best last, uh, wall I've ever had in my entire career. I don't know if it was just like the excitement of, of the Olympics or what was at play there, but I just remember coming off the wall and at that point, like I was already kind of going into oxygen debt a little bit. So I didn't have the most peripheral vision as I might normally. And I remember getting to about halfway down the pool and being able to see out of what peripheral vision I had was that there was a little bit of splashing off to my right. And that to me was telling me like, all right, either, you know, Ryan's feet are right next to my head or his arms are right next to my head, but you know, I'm, I'm at least in the ballpark. Right. Um, and I just remember putting my head back, touching the wall, um, and looking up, honestly expecting to see like second or third place and would have been absolutely elated with that. But seeing first place, much less Olympic record next to my name was, was freaking crazy. And to your point, like that, that all came, it started that last lap with the, probably the best underwater dolphin kick out of my, of my career. Tyler, we're talking about, you know, what makes those next level athletes at the Olympic games achieve <clears throat> greatness. That year, you made the team in the 200 fly. You were one of the best 400 IMers in the world and happened to run up against Michael Phelps and Ryan Lochte in the same quadrennial. I'm sure that Eric Vent could talk to you about that. I'm sure that if he were still alive today, Eric Namesnick could talk to you about that. There's some great Michigan roots and traditions there. Talk about what it's like to be in the same era, in the same generation as some of the all-time greats. Yeah, I mean, I feel like as time goes on, like we're always talking about the all-time greats, right? Like we're, we're already talking about mm -hmm. the next generation of Michael Phelps and Ryan Lochte. Like there's always going to be, in my opinion, you know, 
I think what Michael Phelps did in his career was, was obviously amazing, phenomenal. There are a lot of the adjectives that you would use to describe that illustrious career, right? But I feel like we're already seeing, you know, the next generation with Caleb Dressel. You know, you've got some crazy swims coming from a young David Popovich. I probably um, totally slaughtered how that name is supposed to be pronounced. But like, you've got some amazing swimmers on the horizon. So as far as I'm concerned, they were just other swimmers, right? And, but it was cool to be competing at the same time because they brought a lot of notoriety to the sport. And even though I didn't beat them very often when I did, it was like, it was a big deal when it happened because if they weren't who they were, then it wouldn't have been as, as big of a deal, right? And for the record, it was very few times where I beat either of them, but it, it did happen every once in a blue moon. Um, well, I can tell you, Tyler, that when we were watching NCAAs back in the day and you eclipsed Michael Phelps short course American record in the 400 IM, I think a lot of us thought that that was going to be your event. And it was great to see that 200 fly making the Olympic team and getting after that 200 backstroke. And I know as another segue that we have in this country a tremendous amount of pride in the 100 and 200 backstroke. 96, Brad Bridgewater wins. 2000, Lenny Kraselberg. 04, Pearsall. 08, Lochte. 2012, you win the gold medal. And now we have Ryan Murphy taking it in Rio and trying to defend in Tokyo. Talk a little bit about how hard it is to, number one, defend a gold medal. And number two, continue this tradition of American success where the expectation is, we own the backstroke events. Yeah, it's it. Those are big shoes to fill. But you know, knowing what I know about Ryan, um, you know, I, I reached out to Murph last week and just said, "Hey, like, um, I don't know if you've heard from anybody else. I just want you to know, like, you know, you have my utmost support. Dude is a class act. He's an amazing athlete, obviously, and um, I hope that the past history of." the U.S. and its success in backstroke only gives him confidence and doesn't weigh him down in any way. It, that, that should just mean that the fact that he climbed to the top of the pyramid in the U.S. means he is fully prepared to take on the rest of the world. Um, and I, I hope he sees that. But I know that knowing, knowing him and his preparation, he's top physical form. He's got a great mindset. Um, I think he's going to do a great job and continue to represent the U.S. In a, in a stellar way, as he always does. It's been amazing to watch that progression. And when you think of it in terms of the Olympic scope, some of those guys coming out of bowls, Caleb Dressel, Ryan Murphy, you know, you, you talk about Joseph schooling and what he did in Rio. Uh, that was a pretty remarkable group that Sergio had. And uh, it, it brings us to the first event that I want to talk about, which is the 200 IM and a lot has been made in the last four years about Michael Andrew and what he's capable of doing. We've got a top five right now in the world where you're looking at Michael Andrew with 155 low, Duncan Scott, uh, the Brit is in at 155.9. And then we have uh, Wang Shun from China, Mitch Larkin from Australia and Hugo Gonzalez from Spain, all 156 low. This looks to be an exciting race. I don't know if you guys saw Dan or Tyler, but Michael Andrews out in 23 plus 
on the way out in the 200 IM. Tyler, what are, you, what are your thoughts on this race going into Tokyo? Uh, my, my initial thought is, is jealousy because I couldn't go that fast with a gun <laughs> pointed at my head. Um, so that, you know, it's, it's just crazy to see where, like the, the state of swimming right now, especially considering the crazy last 18 months we've had, mm-hmm. like for people going that fast right now, after all of that, just is unbelievable. And Michael, you know, he's clearly found what works very well for him. And not only, and one thing I appreciate, I read an article about him the other day that was along the lines of like, obviously everybody focuses on the training, you know, obviously he's a great athlete, but one thing that stuck out to me was his, um, his thought on longevity in the sport. Like he's obviously he's trying to be good, but like he wants to be around for a long time and doing the events that he does for a long time. And I don't know that I've approached somebody who has that built into their perspective. So it's been especially fascinating for me to watch him, but clearly, I mean, he's, he's an athlete that doesn't really have a weakness. He's got four solid strokes. He's extremely fast, extremely powerful. And and I think it's going to be fun to watch that event. There's no doubt. And talk a little bit about that outspeed. One thing that Dan Burke and I talk to our age groupers a lot in the, in the IM is, you know, we want a fast fly, but we want that freestyle to be close behind that fly. Well, Michael is kind of flipping the script on that. He's out incredibly fast and just Mm -hmm. trying to hang on. You know, we've seen a lot of changes in the way that we train and, and certainly you come from a little bit of a mix of old school with uh, some of the stuff you did with John Urbanchek and what you did at Michigan and then what you did later on with David Marsh. Uh, we hear a lot about USRPT, but talk a little bit about the evolution of the way that you swim that event. Uh, well, I, I think I want to use the 200 freestyle as more of an analog to that, that event, even though it is different, but just in terms of the approach to the event, because it used to be keeping in mind, I was never like top 10 in the world at the 200 freestyle or even top 20 or 30. Um, my approach to the two free, which I thought was pretty standard to a lot of other 200 freestylers at the time was very like methodical, tactical. And it's kind of turned into like a 200 meter sprint now. It's like, who can, who can, um, get out there and deal with the pain for longer. Like it's almost turned into like a shorter 400 IM in that way, the 200 freestyle in that it's, it's like a, like a controlled sprint the whole time. Um, and, and the two IM has, in my opinion, sort of always been that way. But what's different is, is you've got people who, in my opinion, are more suited to hundred and under swimming that are doing the 200 IM versus it being like, pure IMers that were doing the swim. And now because that's happening, we're seeing a lot, uh, you know, a lot more people in that 55, 56 range where it used to be when I was in the water, you know, that was kind of more the, the exception than the norm. So, um, you know, you got to have crazy amounts of anaerobic endurance. Obviously you, it's a, it's a great asset to be out at, um, the 15 meter mark in first place. I think it was Russell Mark who told me that, um, in basically every international race, you have a statistic advantage, statistical advantage, if you are at 15 meters first, as it relates to winning the race in the end. 
So if what you can get out there with stat. easy speed, yeah, it is. Um, and tells you a lot about your start and your first underwater. But if you've got the speed to follow up after that, while still having enough foundation to not, you know, die like a slaughtered animal in the last quarter of your, your race, then you're going to be in a great position. And clearly the recipe that Michael Andrews got is working for him. I love it. And Dan, let's make a note of that for senior prep practice tomorrow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's get those underwaters going and, and let's start timing to 15 meters. I love it. Mm -hmm. Tyler, you, you bring up the 200 free in comparison to the 200 IM with your explanation there. And we're looking at an extremely fast potential 200 freestyle final in Tokyo with Ariane Titmus from Australia. People have been watching. The Aussies had a tremendous trials. We are building them up a little bit. They changed the way that they did their format. They moved their trials almost in sync with our trials for the first time in many, many quads. They have a new national team director, but we're looking at Ariane Titmus right now with a 153.09, followed by Ledecky, Yuzhan from China, Emma McKeon, who's been lighting the world on fire in every sprint freestyle event from Australia, and then Siobhan Hoi from Hong Kong, uh, a Michigan alum, a fellow Michigan alum. Go Blue. Go Blue. Talk a little bit about how fast this women's 200 free final is. Does Titmus have the out speed to outlast Ledecky, or is Ledecky going to reel her in at the end? That's going to be a great race, but you can't, you can't discount these three, four, and five ranked athletes because they are all elite world-class. Only 0.86 separate the top five. Yeah, I, I think out of out of the entire lineup, I think this event in particular is going to be one of the most fiercely contested. Mm -hmm. Although my internal hope is, is that Ledecky is going to destroy everybody. <laughs> but uh, it, it's just one of those events where just the slightest miscalculation or, or the slightest mistake can, can really hurt you um, in the latter half of the race. And I think that to your point, you know, it's going to come down to who's got the best balance of out speed versus home speed. Um, I would say that as, as Ledecky gets further into her career, one of the things that's going to help her is that, you know, her, um, her sprinter genes are going to express themselves just a little bit more and it might be a little bit more difficult to hold on to that back half. So I would, hope that she's you know trying to put a little bit more gas in in the front to stay in the fight because even if everything's perfect right you take all the swimmers and you put them at their prime there's also a, a mental game there too and some people feed into this and some people don't feed into it like I always enjoyed having somebody get out in front of me so I could try reeling them in like a prize fish at the end of the at the end of the race and some people shut down so I just hope that um, you know Ledecky puts herself in the right position as she always does to be able to capitalize at the end of a race like that. No doubt about it. And, you know, one thing that Dan and I were talking about last week, we were talking about the progression of the 400 free and how it relates to the 500 freestyle and yards in our country. And we're seeing so many men, and you know this Tyler, that are <clears throat> sub 410 now in yards, really getting it done but it's not necessarily translating over to long course. We're seeing so many women, low 430s, uh, you know, a couple high 420s, 
and and we're still not necessarily seeing that translate in over the long course. But we have right now two women in the world squarely under four minutes. Titmus has the top time in the world this year with a 356, which mm-hmm. is one second faster than my lifetime best. And then we got Katie, who just broke four minutes. And uh, that was just cruising for her, really. You never want to count Katie out of this event. But this event has become a controlled sprint. We have Mm -hmm. a a few of the Chinese women just behind these top two. But really, this is a race for gold, silver, bronze. Yeah, I I think, um, you know, that that race has always been so tactical. Um, And to your point, like it's it's kind of the the 400 free today is is, in my opinion, like the 200 free was 10 years ago in that it was very much a controlled sprint. Uh, you know, but now it's kind of the two free has kind of become like just a full out sprint and see who can hold on. Mm-hmm. Whereas the, the four free is, is a controlled sprint. And I always felt like, in my opinion, people who are good at these short course versions of, of these events tend to have, you know, obviously amazing walls and, um, you know, great turns, but for some reason, you know, they, they don't really lend themselves to the longer pool. I think a lot of that comes down to just like, you know, foundation, right? Because you're, you're swimming longer. You're not turning and kicking as much. But that said, I mean, I, the only thing I wouldn't discount is that the U.S., when the pressure is on and the chips are down, like we get it done. I've watched so many ins- inspirational swims. Myself, for example, like I was the underdog. I was not expected to win, but the chips were down and something amazing happened. And that's one of the things that the U.S. is known for. And one of the things that I love and respect about the team is that we get it done. We find a way to get it done, even when it might not look so good on paper. Dan, you and I remember, uh, you know, watching uh, London and seeing the breakout performance of Katie Ledecky at those games. Tyler, you were there. What did you recognize in that youngster? You know, we, I had seen her swim that year at NCSA Junior Nationals. And I thought to myself, watching her swim, this kid's got a legitimate shot. And, you know, seven months later, she had a gold medal draped around her neck. What did you notice about her as a young athlete when you were one of the veterans on that team? (laughs) Well, uh, I, I had gotten a train with her before the London games up at, up at the Olympic training center. And it's a humbling experience having, uh, you know, a young developing and as sexist as this might be a young developing female athlete, whoop your butt at altitude. <laughs> I was like, all right then. And, and I was always known as like, you know, one of the people who could throw down in the middle of a practice and, and grind out a really gnarly aerobic set, but she came in there were a couple of times where she, like, she showed me up. I was like, dang. Um, but then leading into London, it wasn't any surprise to me that she made it to be honest, but watching her go on and dominate in the way that she did and have the composure that she did and not do what I've seen some other young athletes do and sort of get wrapped up in their own mind. She's just had this consistency and, and rhythm to her career of just, you know, going home, 
getting, getting the stuff done that she needs to get done, showing up, taking care of business and doing a great job at it. And just having that be her cycle. Like she's very almost robotic in that way. And I think that was one thing that stood out in London was that she was very methodical in her execution. She didn't let anything get in the way and, and she let the positive energy push her even more. And, and I could tell even at that point, I was like, she's going to be around for a while. She's going to do amazing things. No doubt about it. I, I can attest to that work ethic. I was on the pool deck at national team camp in October of 2015. And I saw you getting into some really good, excited discussions with your teammates about certain times on a set. <laughs> it was fun to watch. Uh, that brings that competitive spirit that you had brings us to our next event, which <laughs> is the women's 100 breaststroke. A lot has been made over the last few years about Lily King's dominance in this event. She is a fantastic racer at the 100 meter distance. She does have a close field behind her, including a huge performance at the U.S. Trials by Annie Laser, who's been training with Ray Luz at Indiana. Um, there is a few. Uh, there's an Italian athlete and Sophie Hansen from Sweden. Um, Michaela's teammate at NC State is 105.69. This seems to be like a race. Who can ever crack 104 flat is going to be your champion. Mm -hmm. What have you seen in this event, Tyler, that gets you excited besides the fact that Lily King brings some swagger to our women's team in Tokyo. Yeah, I mean, we don't often get personalities like Lily's, right, in our sport. Because, and I, I wish we had more like like her, because that would, you know, that would make the sport more exciting to watch from an out of the pool perspective. Because, like, you get personalities on deck, right? Like. It's fun watching how that interacts with your interaction of watching the swim. Mm -hmm. That's what makes it fun for me. Um, so Lily's, Lily's personality is awesome. Um, you know, I swam with Annie Laser for a while. She's a great person, uh, works her butt off, obviously had a wonderful performance at trials. And, and I'm looking forward to her, you know, really doing a great job and performing well in Tokyo. And I know she will. Um, but really, like, I know those two. I think the secret factor there for Team USA and not focusing on any one of those two individuals, I think for Team USA, the secret ingredient is how good their relationship is. And I know that when you go into this competition, like it is literally the world against Team USA. Everybody's watching us. And to be able to lean on someone like the way they lean on each other leading into that race with, you know, Lily being the veteran and, and Annie being, you know, somebody who she can lean on Lily's experience, I think is going to be an interesting facet to watch play out over the course of, you know, the, the competition as it relates to that race. There's no doubt about it. And, and that amount of competition and the way that Lily postures on the pool deck and in the ready room, those are such fun interactions mm -hmm. that I know NBC Sports will try to capitalize on. But oh, they it, already do. <laughs> they already are, right? So it, it brings us to the, the heavyweight title bout in the men, which is the 50 freestyle. I think a lot of us, you know, especially those of us who work with Fitter and Faster, we are so rooting for Bruno Fratis. Uh, as Americans, we're hoping that Caleb can, can make some magic happen or Michael makes some magic happen, but you know, we're certainly rooting for Brent and Bruno. This is shaping up to be quite an exciting race. 
uh, not unlike many other 50 freestyles in, in Olympic history, but this is perhaps one of the most talented fields that we've ever seen. You have Caleb right now. He's world number one at 21-0. Vlad Morozov, who I feel like has been swimming for 25 years, is still 21-4, <laughs> a great athlete at USC. He's going to be representing Russia. Ben Proud has exploded onto the international scene from Great Britain. He's at 21-4. You got Michael Andrew, 21-4. Bruno last year was 21-3 for Brazil. And you have Gumliev from, uh, from Greece, who's 21-6. This is going to be all about great start, great turn, great breakout. And Dan, what's one thing that you always tell our kids about Caleb Dressel when you're at practice? Well, first and foremost, the kid's just an animal. I mean, the, the way he gets off that block, uh, I mean, as good as everyone else is in that field, I think he's going to be the first one in the water and farthest away from that block. There's, there's something about that first 15 meter, Tyler, that seems otherworldly. I mean, when you look, and, and nowadays, whenever we're at juniors or we're at nationals, we see the reaction time. You're looking at Caleb. He, sometimes he is 0.48 off the blocks. Can you, what do you see in that first 15 to 25 meters of a 50-meter race? The, I forget. I think you're, it was a coach named Joseph Nagy. Who's, he's, he's like a breaststroke. You guys know him. Uh, yes. Breaststroke guru up in Vancouver. Mike Berriman's coach. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Originally, I went up and did originally from Hungary. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I got connected with him through John Urbanchek, and I went up to Vancouver and, and trained with him on my breaststroke. And he tried with all his might to make some improvements, and they they were marginal at best, which should tell you a lot about my breaststroke, not his his ability. But I remember him telling me once that uh, we were talking about some of the best breaststroke races that had ever been swam in history. And he said there, he said, there has never been perfect and there never will be perfect. He said in, in our sport, the people who win are the people who make the least number of mistakes. And the longer the race goes, the more fudge factor you have. This isn't exactly how he put it. He put it in his own way, but with the 50 free, it's, splash and dash, right? You get one shot at every movement that you make with the exception of, you know, from your breakout to, to your finish, right? You're, you're taking lots of strokes in there, but like you get one start, one streamline, one breakout, one finish and so on and so forth. So you cannot make any mistakes. And it's not just, it's not enough to be powerful and fast anymore. To your point, we have a, we have an amazing field that we're going to watch in, in, a pretty short amount of time. Uh, so even if you're Caleb Dressel with all the raw talent, all the raw power and speed that he's got, you screw up your breakout game over. I don't know that anybody in the world can, can make a mistake and recover from that in the field, like you just described. But what I respect about Caleb is that not only is he, he's got raw talent, not only does he have raw speed, He's got a wonderful mindset. He's genuine. He's down to earth. And he's truly a student of the sport. Like I have, I've coached alongside him in clinics a couple of times now. And I really appreciate his understanding of the sport and his ability to relate it to other people in an effective way, which tells me that his understanding internally of the sport is really great. If you, if you ever meet another great coach that can, 
And, and, and coaching is interesting because it's like there's, there's your understanding and your ability to relate that, right? If you can relate it, that means your understanding of the topic is very, very good. And very rarely, I wouldn't say rarely, it, it's not a, um, how do I put this? It's a situation where like you can be a good athlete, but be a poor coach, which tells me mm-hmm. that that athlete in particular is just doing what's natural. They don't really understand what's going on. And athletes that, that is very, very good at what they do in the pool and has the ability to teach it tells me they fully understand what they're doing and they're thinking about it. And Caleb is one of those people. So knowing all of these things about him, I would still put my money on him. I think he's going to crush it. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that analogy that you made. When you think about who these athletes are coached by, you know, whether it was Morozov and his time with Coach Salo at USC, you're talking about Bruno working as an age grouper in our club development program in this country because he swam club in the United States as an age group athlete, and then progressing to a practitioner like Brett Hawk, who is so good at the details and the skills, or Caleb, who, tr- who trains really in a non-traditional sprint program like Florida with Greg Troy, Caleb is still going 20 times 400 free at least once a year. So we're seeing this collaboration of different styles come together in the heavyweight bout. It's a lot like MMA in a way where you mm-hmm. have so many different styles that come into play. Dan, as a former college coach and now club coach, what would you say to young athletes or coaches who are watching this program about utilizing different skills or different approaches that we all have as coaches in the sport? Oh, I mean, what I tell everyone I've ever talked to, like I've been working in NAS swim camp all week. I tell them there's no one way to do anything. Uh, It's all dependent on the individual and kind of what works for that specific body. Right. I mean, sometimes if, there's drop dead sprinters. Like when I was at Wabash, I, I had a kid. He loved to just get on the power towers every other day and just grind out seven seconds of all out heavy lifting. Right. And then you got guys like Caleb Dressel, who I guarantee he's, he's doing 200 IMs almost every day. You know, uh, it's just, you gotta be open to what works for your body and your, your coach is the one that knows that. So. I love it. And, and, you know, for, for all you age groupers out there, or you young coaches who are watching this, there's a lot of these athletes that you kind of put into certain boxes that didn't grow up inside that box, right? One of the most famous sprinters as I, when I was a kid growing up was Tom Yeager. He had this American record in short course yards for years, 1906. His first junior cut was in the mile. So you know, as a young coach is developing, you want to make sure you you have a versatile program. And Tyler, as a young age group athlete, and then as a senior athlete at Fullerton, I know that you saw a lot of different types of training. You weren't pigeonholed into one box. Um, I agree with that somewhat, but to back up for a second, um, you know, I'll just call it out. And I, I think there, there are a lot of coaches out there who probably had this discussion internally or maybe over a beer or two, but like, I think the world of Michael Andrew, he's an amazing athlete. And I also think that he's a rare example of somebody who's amazing at what he does and is found through his training and, and by working with his, with his dad, 
something that works very well for him in particular, which is the USRPT. And I have a lot of kids that ask me about USRPT. Like, oh, should I be doing this? My coach doesn't do this, but Michael Andrews working on it. So maybe we should be thinking about it. And ultimately, like I, what I think it is, is like, and, and it's fascinating because you don't hear anybody saying, oh, Katie Ledecky did this. So maybe I should be doing that. I think what's at play here is kids saying, oh, okay, well, if Michael Andrew can be that fast and only do what Michael Andrew does, and that's not to discount what he does. I think they're looking at it from a volume perspective. They're like, oh, well, that's, that's the right way to do it. Cause it's, it's, le you know, the, the least amount of volume to the most amount of speed, but that's not taking the individual into account. That's like saying that every club team in America should be doing the same thing with their operations, not knowing anything about their background. That's totally mm -hmm. nonsensical. So I, the biggest thing I would impress upon people is figure out what works for you. Try out a lot of different stuff, figure out what works for you. Cause mm -hmm. until you try, you don't know. It's like, it's like saying, Oh, well, you know, this is the, the, how fast can your car go? Well, the manufacturer says it's going to go 120, but I've never gone above 80, right? Like how do you really know until you try it? So as it related to my training, like I came from a very, um, volume heavy background where it's very much like you know i used to do like 10 600s or <clears throat> like six, 15 300s and like wild stuff like that and i would try to do those sets backstroke and and i just had this monstrous base of of aerobic capacity that i built on through college and then once i got to college like i had i was uh, I was an undergrad at University of Michigan for three years, and I had three coaches while I was there. It was Bob Bowman my first year. It was John Urbanchek my sophomore year. And then it was Josh White and Mike Bottom my, my junior year. And then I went and trained with Dave Marsh. So, like, I've had a lot of perspective in different coaches and, and luckily, like, a lot of really elite coaches. But that said, I kind of always got, like, you know, oh, they're, they're doing some, like some power and speed work over there. Can I go do that? It's like, no, you're going to go over here and do a bunch of 400 IM. So like every once in a blue moon, I got exposed to that sort of stuff, mm -hmm. but I, I got different perspectives from those different coaches on what they thought would be beneficial towards my training in my specialty. Tyler, we would be remiss if we didn't bring up this story. And I know I've told it to you before. So here we are, our flight gets in, it's, uh, it's late. We're in Mesa uh, at the Grand Prix. <laughs> it's Michael Phelps's comeback meet. And uh, we're sitting in the airport. We were in Charlotte on a layover and you guys were getting on a plane. We actually ended up getting on the same plane and we got to the pool at the same night. And I have Dan, these were your teammates. Dan swam yep. for us, Tyler. I have uh, four or five kids from Victor with me and we're doing a set of 10 400s in Mesa the night before the Grand Prix starts. I remember this. And Alyssa Helax over in lane six, she goes, Coach Mike, I think Tyler Clary and Ryan Lochte are going down the slide and then sprinting 15 meters. <laughs> and, and Dave came over to me and he goes, Mike, what's the main set? I go, well, we're going 10 400s. And he goes, Tyler, you remember what this is like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was like All an average I Tuesday heard about for, me. for the next four days at the meet was, why do we do this? And <laughs> Tyler Clary's going down the water slide and sprinting 15 meters. Why can't we do that? 
Yeah, you see, but but what what your kids didn't see was that the, that was the only rest I had had in like six weeks. So, <laughs> well, when we talk about training like that, it brings us to our next event, which is the eight hundred free. And Dan, why don't you look up the the top ten times all time in the women's eight hundred free? Let's see what we come up with. I'm sure right now, a, a large number of those attributed to the same person. That's right. And right now we have Ledecky leading the world at 8.13.6. Ariane Titmus, who, again, is having an unbelievable season, is right at 8.15. Kaya Melverton from Australia, she's right there at 8.19. Quattarella from Italy, who had a great world championships last year and really raced Ledecky well. It was a sick Ledecky. She was going through some health issues at that meet, but really raced well. And then we have Katie Grimes, uh, who is a, a whose coach is a coach's corner guest earlier this year, Tyler? You actually helped set that one up with Ron Aiken. Sandpipers in Nevada put three athletes under 18 on the team this year, plus two pros. Uh, talk a little bit about how Katie is kind of expected to win this event, the pressure that goes along with that, and then these little upstarts that are coming. Quadarella has really come a long way. I know she's only at 820. But she really rests well. And Titmus, again, from Australia, is not far behind. This is an event that traditionally we have a lot of pride of in the United States. Janet Evans, Brooke Bennett, uh, and now Katie. Th there's a lot of pressure here. And this event is also almost turning into kind of a middle distance sprint. Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> I, I think it's pretty obvious like this, this event is, is Katie's event to lose. Um, I, I, I think that, I think Grimes is going to do very, very well. Um, and it would be really cool to, you know, see if, if Katie has any impact on, on the younger swimmer, um, at camp, instilling confidence, talking a little bit about what to expect with the pressure. And that I think would be one way that, that she could really help her um, survive the storm that's coming because, you know, the, what's interesting about like, I, I think everybody saw how much young blood and new faces there are in this team. Um, and what does concern me a little bit is that, you know, that, that inexperience is a little bit of an X factor. It might work out great, you know, them not having any grounds for comparison and, and just kind of you know, running headlong into the abyss that is the Olympics. But it would be, I think, a great thing if Katie was able to help insulate anybody else that she's coming in contact with from all of the stress, all of the pressure, all of the expectation that comes with being on Team USA um, so that we can take those variables off the table. That said, I think both of them, both of our ladies are, are swimming the race in effectively the same way. Like they're both very back-end intensive um, swimmers as it relates to that, that particular swim. And um, as Forrest Gump would say, that's about all I have to say about that. <laughs> I hear you. I mean, that event, you know, has has really kind of diversified in the last few months as we lead up to these games. It's kind of always been an afterthought, right? Like, we just know that Ledecky is going to light it up. But now, 
there's a little bit more parity in the field. And something that Coach Shalo said to me a few weeks ago was, if Katie's pushed, you might see that eight-minute mark go down. And that's something that I'm really excited about, seeing if it can happen. It's definitely going down. Dan, Dan, is, put, Dan is going on record right now. <laughs> and it, it, I think you might be right. I think it might go down. And it brings us to another really exciting event. And Tyler, I know you'll have something to say about this event. It's the 400 IM for the men. Diaceto has been crushing it in the last six to eight months, even through COVID. On April 3rd, he went 409. Of course, we have we have Michael Phelps's world record, which we all feel like is still a little bit out of touch. Chase is 409.09, just seven one hundredths behind him. And then we have Verizato, we have Clarabert uh, from New Zealand, and then we have Barodin from Russia. This is going to be a tough event. Everybody in the top five is right around 409. Tyler, is it going to be the breaststroke or is it going to be the outpace that decides this event this year? It's a great question. I think I, I don't I don't see any of the athletes that are in the dogfight this year as being like most of them didn't swim the 400 IM like I did, which was very front half heavy because my breaststroke was freaking terrible. Like they all have very confident or competent, very strong breaststroke legs. Um, and so I, I think that if that's all a constant, then even while I might say that's not, in my opinion, I could be totally wrong about this, but it's it's not usually their tactic of going out as, as, as fast as they can to be able to hold on for the second half. I think that because all of them have a solid breaststroke, the person who can balance that out speed while still be able being able to harness like the majority of their breaststroke and have enough in the tank to get home, like those are the people that are gonna be fighting for a medal. I, I think we're going to see the top three or four within a second or two of each other personally. Well, and you know, we've, we've got Gunnar Bentz on the team now from the United States fitter and faster clinician in a 200 fly gunny also, bunny. Yeah. The gunny bunny. He also said that uh, the 400 IM will be decided in the breaststroke. So it'll be an exciting race to watch for sure. When we move into the women's 100 backstroke, we got Reagan Smith, Last year, set two world records, a lot of hype going into the U.S. trials. Tyler, this was an athlete who had to sit in the ready room and at trials, watch on the big screen at trials, a commercial about her making the team before she had made her first event. So imagine being in the ready room. You haven't made the team yet. And there's a commercial on NBC about you making the team. You're 17 years old. You haven't swam a lap of NCAA swimming yet. And you're getting ready to try to make your first Olympic team. She made it in the 100 back, fell a little bit short in the two back. Talk about the pressure on this new in-girl for USA Swimming. You know, um, 
Pressure is an interesting concept, right? Like I, it's different for everybody. Some, some don't experience that pressure from the outside and, and it's all comes from the inside. Some people just seem completely unaffected by it. Um, and, and, and it's just different for everybody. And so not knowing Regan all that well, um, I, I can't say how that's going to be for her. But what I can say is, is that she's already shown in several occasions that she has the ability to manage that pressure. And in fact, it makes her come alive, in my opinion. Her, some of her best swims are at, are at the meets where there's a lot riding on it. Right, like we haven't we haven't seen her, and and we can all we can all call some swimmers out that we've seen over time who can somehow crank out a best time at a random meet in the middle of the season when they've had a week of rest, but can't quite put it together at the end of the season. And she's not one of those. So one of the things that I hope that she, if if she was to get a recording of this, I would hope that that she understands that her response to those those pressure-filled, stressful situations brings the best out of her. And, and to not step away from that, like lean into it, enjoy that, that raw feeling of, of what it is to be in the position that you're in and everything riding on what you're doing because your body lights up and comes alive when you do that. I hope, I hope she has that realization. Tyler, what are your thoughts on so many club athletes making this Olympic team? It's kind of a shift. You know, we've seen in the last two quads, a lot of collegiate programs and a lot of pro programs putting athletes on the team. This year, we saw a lot of club coaches and a lot of club athletes making the team. I, I think that's that's a factor of COVID, 100%. Um, if, you, if you think about, and this is a question I'm asking directly to everybody who's watching this, um, Think about the universities around you that you've heard of. How many of them actually stayed open for the majority of COVID? Probably not that many. Whereas club teams, while there are a lot that weren't able to open at all, there were also a heck of a lot more that were coach-owned or, or lived in a, in a county or in a jurisdiction that were able to stay open or were, were able to be more creative, right? And even as things started to open up, and more clubs were starting to get back in the water and, and certain college teams weren't able to, like those swimmers probably made a, a decision to stay associated with the club team, which then helped the younger swimmers. And I think further mm -hmm. catalyzed the, the, uh, the thing that we're talking about. So I, I think it's a hundred percent a factor of COVID. Dan, what are your thoughts on age group development as these young athletes watch this trials and they start to see, Hey, Sandpipers from Nevada had two or three kids make the Olympic team. This is such a rare thing. In the 70s and 80s, we saw a lot of this, right? Because club swimming was pro swimming. Mm -hmm. There's been a generational shift because of the success of our collegiate programs and our top coaches who are able to create professional programs such as Wolfpack Elite at NC State. Um, you know, you see Club Wolverine at Michigan. Talk a little bit about why you believe it's important for young age group swimmers to see club level athletes qualifying for the Olympic team in the United States. Yeah, I mean, we see all the time, 
and not knocking any high school programs or anything like that, but there's a lot of younger athletes that will leave the club program to compete for their high school, which power to them. I did the same thing. I, I wanted to compete for my high school. I didn't even think twice about not competing for my high school to just swim club. Would I have been better? 99% sure I probably would have, but um, you know, then they come back from their high school season, not necessarily out of shape, but not in the shape that they would be if they were swimming for clubs. So I think for them to, to see all these club athletes just excelling in the sport, the way that they are, it's going to, Oh, maybe, maybe I will stay with, uh, with my club team that, that is truly invested in my swimming. You know, the, obviously again, not knocking the high school programs, but they've got other things that they have to worry about as well. Whereas these higher level club programs, like it is the number one priority is, is making them better athletes, better individuals. So. I, I totally agree. And we want to support high school swimming as club coaches. We want to continue to encourage our athletes to go that route. Um, but, mm -hmm. but it needs to be said that if you want to make Olympic trials, if you want to make national teams, you got to be fast long course. And Tyler, that was certainly a part of your development as an age group athlete. Talk a little bit about why long course success is important as an age grouper. Well, I mean, there's what, what's fascinating about the American state of swimming is that there's, there's an inherent disconnect between college performance and international performance because you have short course yards and long course meters. Um, and <clears throat> the, the way the current swimming structure is, is that like, if you're in a situation where you know, you're swimming at college, those people that are in charge of those programs, like their intent is to have you perform to the best of their ability in that, that given, um, that given course, right? Short course. Whereas club, you know, they're, they're not worried about NC2As. They're not worried about conference championships. They're worried about, you know, that six month short course season that they might have. And then they're, they're concerned with that longer long course season and having that understanding is great. But the situation that I was in while I was an undergrad in Michigan was that, okay, you know, it's great to swim and represent my college. And, and I cherish every one of the years that I swam as, as a Wolverine. But there came a point in my career where I had to come to the realization that if I want to give myself the best shot at making the Olympics, which is long course meters, I need to fully devote myself to long course meters. And some collegiate programs can give that to a uh, an extra undergrad group. Um, but in the time when I was swimming, it was very much like they didn't really have pro groups that were training a different course from the college team. Like it's just, it, you did whatever the college team was doing. And so when I made that decision to go back to club swimming, leave college swimming to go back to club swimming is because in my opinion, clubs, club teams are inherently designed to provide better long course um, performance than a club or than a college team does because a they're swimming long course more and b 
a lot of the big performances that are used by college coaches to select who they want to recruit come from those long course meets. So extra emphasis is placed in those areas. So I, I, if it was me, I would do it the same way again. If I wanted to make the Olympic team, I would find the right club team who was designed to give me the training that I felt I needed. That would be where I would end up, not necessarily a college team. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. And, and I so appreciate that perspective. And, and it's a good segue into the next conversation because if you're going to have a great long course 200 back, you better have a great kick and you better be kicking 20 to 25% of your workout as an age grouper. And we're mm -hmm. looking, Tyler, at a 200 back in Tokyo that is going to be groundbreaking, potential world record-breaking field. You have Kaylee McKeon, whose dad was an unbelievable swimmer at the University of Iowa with our assistant coach, Scott Wisner, at Victor Swim Club. He swam with her father. Um, Kaylee is at 204.2 right now. And then you have a host of athletes right at 205.5. So Ryan White, who was a big surprise to make this U.S. Olympic team, is third. Margarita Panzeria from Italy is 205.5. Emily Seabom, a veteran from Australia, is 206.3. And Phoebe Bacon from NCAP, uh, representing the United States at 206.4. Those are the top five times. It might take a 202 to win this event. Tyler, talk a little bit about the 200 back and the strategy. This is an event that you're going to have to swim three times at the Olympic Games. Yeah, the, not speaking for any of the individuals that are going to be competing, but generally, at least when I was swimming, you know, you tried to not show your hand until the last moment, right? And Prelims would just be all right. Just make top 16. Just give me a give me a lane. Minimal energy expenditure, unless you were trying to play mind games. Just get it done. And then in semis, you might get you know you might show nine out of out of ten of your cards, right? Um, and then really the the secret sauce is is you know who plays that game well enough to maybe get in some heads and and bring the last ten percent of their their stores when when it counts. So there is definitely a strategy that that comes into the whole prelims, semis, finals things that, that you were that you were speaking to. But I think uh, it, Tyler, you were you were first after prelims. I think you were second after semis, and then you won the gold. What what is it like managing that experience? So here I am. I'm first after prelims. Okay, I'm managing this. I, I'm kind of trying to figure out where everybody else is. Uh, I'm, here I am after semis, I'm second. Now I'm going into the final. What's the thought process there? Yeah, see, I, I didn't even, I wasn't honestly even thinking in those terms. It was literally like prelims was, you know, swim as smooth a race as you can and see what the time is and let that be a confidence builder moving forward. And so after I hit the wall in prelims, not remembering what I went, I just remember that I felt pretty good. And, and I ended up second. So it was like, all right, well, at least compared to the rest of the field, like for a, what felt like a pretty smooth swim to me, like things are looking pretty good at this point. And then after, after semis, I can't remember if I was second or third going into finals, but I remember like, I felt like there was a good bit on the table still. And 
but knowing that most of the other people were probably playing that same game, it's like, okay, I'm in the hunt here. And then, so your, your prelims and semis would have been, you know, day one, for example, and then you have the next morning off and then the finals are the next day if you don't have any, any other events. And I didn't. So I took that morning off, didn't touch the water, got away, and then came in for finals uh, the following day and did my warm up. And I remember doing pace, like this might be blasphemous for me to say on this podcast, but I'm going to do it anyway. I, I did not warm up that much. Like I, I just, I didn't have to, I, my entire career, I've never had to warm up that much. And you know, it, it worked for me. That doesn't mean for everybody uh, that that should be the case, but that worked for me. And the reason why I'm bringing it up is, is I'll never forget going through my first 600 yard, her first 600 meters when I normally did uh, with her band check on the side of the pool. We did a couple starts and then I did uh, 650s pace. And I was going like 27.6 to the feet, feeling like I was blowing bubbles. <laughs> and huh? Stop it right there. You're good to go. Well, and, and the, literally John said, all right, get out. Just yeah. <laughs> go. You're good. And, but I remember walking out of the water thinking to myself, like, I was going that fast, feeling like I was blowing bubbles. And yesterday went well. So, like, that ultimately was what was, like, giving me the confidence that I would be able to get on the podium. Um, so to answer your question directly, like, there wasn't any, like, direct comparison of, like, okay, I'm at this stage and so on and so forth. It was really just kind of like a culmination as I walked onto the deck for finals of the realization, like, I've got some in the tank. I feel good. I swam really fast in, in prelims. Let's, or in, in, in warm up. let's see what happens. You know, when we think of John, we think of keep it moving, keep it moving. And other things. <laughs> at that point in time, he's like, all right, we're good. <laughs> Cut yeah, it down. Said, All right, don't move anymore. No <laughs> more moving. Right. Uh, Tyler, we're moving into, and Dan too. Um, Dan, I know that you and I have talked a little bit about Adam Petey, and mm -hmm. you and I have talked about his tempo and how it kind of separates him from some of the other athletes. Adam has posted a time this year on April 14th. He went 57.39. Insane. in the 100 meter breast when we think about that like <laughs> we think about breaststroke you know we're, we're we think about like you break a minute you're fast tyler i remember being on the pool deck in uh long beach and watching brendan hansen our good friend break the world record and thinking to myself like my god minute point low is so fast now we're looking you know 12 years later 57 3 going into this year and that's not even the world record he's been 56 mm -hmm. this is a a heat that even though pd has been very dominant this is a heat where you have i think it's 13 guys mm -hmm. under 59.5 so this is really a, wow. a, an event that seems wide open even though pd has been so dominant so what about the breaststroke is crucial in getting your hands to the wall first? And it's always the event that we look at as a unicorn, right? Like people are either breaststrokers or they're not, or they learn it later in life or they're not. So, you know, what's your, what, what's your prediction for this hundred breaststroke? 
I'll say this. Breaststroke is not my strong suit. So I, I'm not, I'm honestly not even going to answer your question, but here's what I will say. So what you just said is something that I really want. Like if, if you were to be able to take a clip from this podcast and send it to all of the Olympians, all of the young Olympians that we've got. You got that, Dan? Team. This yep. is going to be the clip, Dan. Got it. I, I want you, I want you to send them this. What you just said was, was very interesting. You just said eight, 10 years ago, a double O point three would have was like unbelievably fast. Right. And here we're talking about 56s and 57s in the same race. And so what that should, what I think the younger people should take from this is don't look at a Katie Ledecky, a Caleb Dressel, um, you know, all these iconic names as people that are like up on this pedestal, right? Like they are incredibly fast. They're amazing athletes in their own right, not taking anything away from them in any, in, in any way, shape or form, but don't let that hinder you in understanding that they're humans and they bleed too. And so knowing that the future is going to be faster than where we are currently, let that amp up your confidence leading into this meet, knowing that A, you're swimming amongst some of the greatest swimmers in history. And the fact that being as young as you are and you're already at their level and competing at the highest level and the biggest stage with them says that if you just continue on the same path, you're going to be in their same shoes at some point down the road, or at least it's highly likely. So how much faster can, can you get there? How much steeper can you make that ramp get in getting there? Don't let it be an exponential graph of speed. Let this early um, exploration into Olympic level swimming and, and what is hopefully a very long career for you be more of a, you know, a straight ramp so that you get up to where your potential is earlier and you can stay there for a lot longer. Use that as, as a confidence inspiration and nothing else. Tyler, we're looking at a 57.39 as the top time in the world this year. Petey has been 56 before. Michael Andrew was 57.1 in the semis at trials. Kaminga from the Netherlands, the Dutchman, he's been 57.9. There's been a lot of talk about whether or not high tempo in breaststroke or riding your line is the best way to go. Based on what you've seen, you know, in the last eight years, what what separates a great breaststroker from, you know, maybe an average breaststroker? Um, the ability to do everything well, right? Like we, we talk about the, this all the time in, in the fitter and faster clinics. Like there's nothing, there's nothing about an elite swimmer in my opinion, that is special in a number of ways, other than the fact that they do the basics extremely well. So from a great swimmer to an average swimmer, like they're just streamlining better. They're catching more with their feet. They're catching more with the insides of their ankles when they're, when they're doing their kick, you know, they're, they're squeezing their elbows through and recovering just a little bit faster. They're hitting their line just a little bit better. Uh, so there, there's no like black magic. They've just, they've, they've figured out how to pick apart all the tiny little details that make up 
every movement that they'll do it in, in the 100 breaststroke and they've figured out how to optimize it. To answer your first question, you know, I, in my, even in my relatively short career, I saw, you know, a back and forth of, you know, it was more about tempo and efficiency and, and getting through the water. And then it became, oh, now or less about tempo and more about efficiency and length. And now it's more about, you know, tempo and, and keeping a, you know, high rates over the course of, of the race while maybe giving up a little bit on efficiency. But what I see over time is going both ways is helping the coaching community learn more about breaststroke and how it works and what makes it tick because breaststroke is a pretty new stroke in the way that we use it, right? Like it's not, it's not a super old stroke in the way that we do it. And so I think we're probably going to see more of a regression towards the middle in that I think more of the longer stroke, like think, you know, Kevin Cordes, Eric Shanto, like those sort of swimmers, I think that's going to come a little bit more back into the fold as we start to reach a point of diminishing returns with the tempo based approach to the hundred breaststroke that we've been seeing, seeing being so successful lately. No doubt about that. And, you know, we're, we're all kind of playing with that tempo versus length paradigm, right? Like we're trying to figure out, you know, what, what we need to do to get faster in that event. And I think we'll see what happens when we get to Tokyo. Dan, you have an update on that women's 800 free top 10 times all time. What do you got for us? So 10th place right now is, I'm not even going to try and go with the name, uh, swimmer from Hungary, last name of Coppice, I think it's pronounced, yeah. uh, from uh, 2016 yeah, yeah. games. She was 8 3 uh, Obviously, we've got Ledecky from those same games. She's at 8 7 And then <laughs> crushing it, uh, she's 10 seconds ahead of second place, uh, Rebecca Arlington out of Great Britain um, from Beijing in 2008 with 8 14. So you kind of get the, the gap there. And we're looking at an event, Tyler, in that 800 free, that it, it might take a sub eight minute performance to win the event. I mean, that, 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 that event, breaking eight minutes in that event for the women would be groundbreaking in the world of swimming. And I think what you'll see is a lot of coaches starting to approach that event and training for that event at a pace that's much more middle distance, purple pace. If you follow her band check, you're going to be training a lot more purple pace in the 800,000 for yards in our country than you would be traditionally. Is that fair to say? <clears throat> yeah. I mean, that's, that's the trend we've already discussed several times tonight as it relates to the, you know, the 200 IM, the 200 free, the 400 free, like, that's where the sport is going for sure. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it, and I think it's probably going to continue to go that way um, at, at least for the short term, right? Like, you know, we're, we're going to get better at, at learning <clears throat> as a, as a community, what, what works really well towards making recovery better and, and that balance of aerobic versus, versus anaerobic training. And, you know, that's just going to make all of these events tend to feel like they're being swum, you know, more like a sprint than they used to. 
Um, but what I think is going to happen is that when, I, I don't think it's a matter of if, it's a matter of when that eight, eight minute barrier gets broken, it's going to be very much like the, you know, the, what was it? The, I think the four minute mile in the, in the, in track and field, mm-hmm. like the, uh, the first person to break four minutes in the mile, um, I forget the person's name and I'm, I'm sure that there are going to be all sorts of people screaming at the screen. How could you not know that name? But I'm not, a, not a friggin' runner. Um, but the first person to break four minutes in the mile running um, did it, you know, years ago. And then within a year or two after that, there were two or three more people that had broken it. And, and I think that not only does this play to the athlete psychology, but it plays to the coach's psychology. How many coaches that are watching this right now are probably in a situation where they're thinking about, okay, how do I, how do I direct this next macro cycle? What, what is it that I'm trying to get out of the swimmers that I'm working with? And how many times have they come up with a certain conclusion and been like, oh, well, this person goes this fast and they only did this much. So, so this is what we should do. I feel like a lot of times coaches tend to base the decisions they make too much off of what the precedent is. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a lot of times the, the coaches that we see um, that are, you know, there are a number of them on the staff of the Olympic team and rightfully so, like they're pushing the boundaries of what the community thinks is possible. That's exactly right. And I think that if we, as, as, as a group of United States swimming coaches commit to focusing less on what the precedent is using it as a guide and a measuring stick and saying, okay, how, how much further in marginally can we push those boundaries? That's going to make it such that team USA has a higher percentage of world best swimmers than any other country in the world. Once we can get past that fact. And I don't know if that makes sense. I hope it does, but that, that I think would be a, a great way to really push swimmers forward. Cause really swimmers just, it, they're just following what the coach says, right? Like they're, they're commi- hopefully they're, co- they're committing to what, uh, what the coach is laying out in the program. So if the coaches can get their heads past, you know, what a certain swimmer is doing and, and seeing a certain amount of performance and just driving the swimmers to the best of their ability for what they can handle that's going to result in better performance down the road. Does that make sense? That makes 100% sense. And it's, it's all about coaches who understand athlete goals and how to frame them and how to focus that athlete on achieving that goal, right? So, you know, you, you had the incredible experience of working with a great coach as an, as an age grouper. And then as a college athlete, you had three great coaches, although that might not be ideal. You had three great coaches come through and then you were able to kind of hone your efforts on what you wanted to do at the Olympic games. And it's a great segue into this event that's up for grabs with the women in the 50 free, Mm -hmm. the top five times are less than 0.12 apart from each other. So we have Emma McKeon from Australia, Kate Campbell from Australia. We have Renomi Kormawanjo uh, from the from the Dutch contingent, Netherlands. Promo with Jojo. 
She is an unbelievable athlete. Mm -hmm. We have Pernell Bloom from Denmark. And then we have Sarah Sodrum bouncing back from a huge injury in her elbow. All have been 24-0 to 23-9-0. This race is up for grabs. What do you think, Tyler? Uh, that, that's a race that I'm really looking forward to watching, partly because, and selfishly, admittedly, um, you know, I, I know a lot of people in that, in, in, in that list that you just, um, called out. So it'll be, it'll be cool to watch. And, um, you know, I know so little about sprinting, but what I, what I really respect about the athletes that are in the, the sprinter category that I, you know, jealously would have loved to have been in, um, is their ability to take themselves to a different place mentally and do that in a, in a more powerful way than some of the mid-distance and distance swimmers can. Um, you know, I, I just look at, look at people with, with a certain mental fortitude like Gary Hall Jr., for example. Uh, you know, he, he just had this persona and he, you could tell he was just in a different different space mentally. And I know that, I know that for all the people that you just called out that are in that final, they all, most of them have extensive international experience and they're all very well proven athletes. They're all going to swim very fast. I have no doubts about that, but it's going to be the person who believes the most. And it's that simple. Um, and by whatever mechanic they can get themselves into that person, like that's going to be the person who pulls through. Um, you know, my, my age group coach, some, some of you may or may not have heard of him. Um, this guy named Kevin Perry. And one of the last things that he said to me, um, Kevin, Kevin got, um, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. I think it was my junior year in, in high school. And he passed away just before the uh, NC2As my freshman year in college at Michigan. And one of the last, the, literally the last conversation that we had together, one of the last things he said to me was, Tyler, don't ever forget the power of just a little bit of self-belief. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things I try to bring to all of the athletes that I work with at Fitter and Faster, and a lot of them I'm sure at this point have heard this because I, you know, I like to keep things consistent and I've done a lot of clinics at this point is, is this phrase that goes, why not me? And what I like to do is, is try to teach people based off of my experience, you know, what, what I've learned over long periods of time so that they can hopefully get to the point of the lesson earlier and push the sport further. And that question, in my opinion, puts someone in a mindset that, Kevin was trying to teach me of just instilling a little bit of self-belief every day. And when I watch a race that's as close and as highly contested as that women's 53 will be, I'm going to be watching the epitome of what that lesson is, is, is who has really mastered that skill over the last several years and who was able to keep a firm grasp on their execution of that skill during the Olympics in a high pressure environment. There's no doubt about that, Tyler. And as we, as we get down to these last events, we're talking about the men's 100 freestyle. We already said in the 50 that it's really the athlete who swims mistake-free 
that's going to get their hand to the wall first. We had Kyle Chalmers win in 2016. Adrian won in London when you won your gold medal. Very few athletes have ever repeated in this event. You got Popoff, who was back-to-back. Vanden Hogeband, who was back-to-back. Talk about why it's so challenging to medal in the 100 free and back-to-back games, more or less win a gold medal in back-to-back games. Yeah, that, that's a great question. I don't, and I don't know that I have the perfect answer for it, but I, I would say that um, be, because in my opinion, the body type for a sprinter as an, in, in an athlete's perspective is a little bit more common than someone who lends themselves to being a middle distance or distance server. This is my opinion, but I think it's more common to be able to achieve the sprinter body type and, and compete at a super high level. That means there's more volatility. And also I think the, the window that a sprinter really hones in on the combination of their training program where with where they are as the individual in their career, like the best, uh, how to put this. If, if a coach has a static training program that never changes over the course of long periods of time, they're probably going to see some variability in the, in the, the performance of their kids. And flipping that perspective as an athlete, you should, if we have the ability to tune a training program to where we are in our physical development and our athletic development at that snapshot in time, that's, that's going to be the athlete that can harness the most performance over the course of their career. And knowing that it's very difficult, if not impossible, I won't say impossible, it's extremely difficult to have a situation where that works means that there's probably going to be a lot of volatility in achieving the the apex of speed in our sport with a little bit of foundation that a hundred swimmer is going to get. So I think that ultimately is what's attributing to some of the volatility that we see, which speaks a lot to people like Popoff and Ben and Hugenbond who were able to back it up. You know, they were able to figure it out or they were that much of a freak of talent at that time that they you know, shined above the rest, regardless of what we just discussed. Tyler, we've, we've talked about a lot of great Olympians, a lot of great American athletes. What does it mean to you to put the stars and stripes on your suit or on your warmups? Talk to us a little bit about what it means to represent your country. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, uh, it's everything, right? And in, a, in an era where there's a lot of perspective dissonance on what, what that could mean and what the United States means, um, for me specifically, it was, it, was, it was a very proud moment, like, right? Like I got to do that a lot over the course of like, a, like an eight or nine year period. And it was always really cool for me to, to have that chance 
not only to be able to prove myself and, and, and show what I was capable of, but show like, this is what my country is capable of producing. You know, if they can produce me, they can produce others like me. And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, I, I, like with my, my Olympic medal, for example, which is right there, I normally don't keep it out, but my, my wife actually had that shadow box made for me a, a couple of years ago, and, and now it's actually out on display. But with that thing, I love to put that medal around people's necks, like whether they're coaches, whether they're swimmers, parents, whoever it is that I come into contact with when I have it on me. It's really cool because as far as I'm concerned, like, Yes, I swam fast and I won that medal. But in my opinion, that medal belongs to everybody else in this country as much as it does me. Like I'm just a keeper of it. Like I just, I, I keep it clean and, you know, try to keep it looking nice. But it belongs to everybody else. So for me, it was very much like a collective, we did this together, but I was the one who just performed it, if that makes sense. So it means a lot to me, and I feel a lot of sense of community having done what I did representing the U.S. Well, you know, on behalf of Clarka, we we certainly appreciate that that she <laughs> she she keeps that medal up there for you, and uh, you know we we are so appreciative of you and your time with Fitter and Faster, Dan. As, as a college athlete, and now as a college coach. And now graduating to be an age group coach, Tyler was a source of inspiration for you. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's really weird for me to see because I, I, I really, I was, I love the sport of swimming. I was a sponge to just the, the education side of it, but it really wasn't until my late college years when I started to really hone in on the elite level swimmers and just really start getting the stats and all that kind of stuff. And so when I started to really get into it and see like someone like Tyler Clary, someone like Aaron Pearsall, like I was a 200 backstroker, like me being on the zoom call is almost a dream for me. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, I don't even know what to say. I, I'm just, I'm almost starstruck, honestly, with all this. Well, you, you're a great asset to our program and we appreciate everything you do. Tyler, what, what's the message that you have for age group coaches who, you know, they, they aspire to have athletes at the highest level. What, what's your message to those coaches who are influencing the, the athletes at the, the introductory levels of our sport? Yeah, I mean, I think, I would draw it back to the, the self-belief message that I, was, that I was putting out earlier. You know, I think a lot of times when people hear me talk from an, an inspirational standpoint, they, they automatically, be, and this is no fault of anybody, but they associate it with speaking towards swimmers. And that's, that's fine because I used to be a swimmer. But the same concept is true with coaches. And if, if you're in a mindset of, you know, if you're constantly second guessing yourself, right, then, then you're probably not going to be putting your best work out in front of your kids. Like your, your workouts are going to, your decisions are going to reflect that mindset of, of kind of insecurity, of, of being uncertain of yourself. 
but maybe instead taking a different mindset towards, you know, where you might be and, and saying, okay, well, I am a coach, USA Swimming Certified. I've been doing this for several years. Like I've had some, you know, I've been improving, you know, my swimmers. So clearly I'm doing something right. And having the realization that like, and I know this is going to be kind of a hot topic, but like, I know probably one of the least favorite things for coaches is dealing with parents. Um, because parents, you know, being parents, like they want the best for their kids. And sometimes it's hard for them to see outside of that, but that energy can, can be kind of a, a burden on coaches and it can make them think negatively because they constantly have people second guessing them, but realize that like, this is what you do. This is your craft. You study this, you love this, you know, what's going on, you know, stay the course, like learn as much as you can, but have the realization, like the people on the Olympic team that like the coaching staff on the Olympic team, they're still learning. There are plenty of things that I could sit down with them at a table and I could ask them, you know, certain questions about training or is it related to a certain technique? And they'll look at me like, I don't freaking know. Like everybody's sort of making it up as they go along. And the people who tell you they're not just have an eloquent way of trying to disguise the fact that they are. This is, you know, we're constantly breaking new ground and just have an understanding that as you move forward, you're going to continue to get better. And you already know more than 99.9% .9 of the other people in the U.S. And, mm -hmm. and be confident in what you're doing. Tyler, talk to me why it's so important about young coaches understanding their financial security and why it's important to get them thinking about setting up their future. Yeah. Um, great, great question. Um, there, there's a lot of reasons why, you know, we all want, in my opinion, the, the, the best thing a coach could do for themselves would be to become, think of themselves as a part of a bigger system that is designed to get kids to swim in college and represent team USA. So what, what are some things that, that a coach can do to not only achieve that, but also make their life outside of the pool deck more fulfilling? Well, as it relates to their personal finance, there, there's a lot of stuff that can be done there. And, and if, and if our, our community as a whole can start to place some more value on creating those systems early, to not only save for, for retirement or volatility in life while protecting ourselves from things that can happen along the way, realize that's going to help you in your job. Like if all of these things are taken care of and you know that risks are managed and you know you have systems in place that are, that are benefiting your future, I can't imagine a scenario where that doesn't make you a better coach. And, and the same thing for club teams, you know, in, in my opinion, club teams have this inherent short-sightedness, at least the 501c3s, and, and I would argue even, you know, in some ways that the, the coach-owned clubs too, they have this inherent short-sightedness in, um, in their operation because a board is only usually around for like two to five years, right? Whereas like very few clubs are operating on, on a scope of 30, 40, 50 years, because those parents are only really concerned with what's happening in that speck of time while their kids are there. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if, if clubs and coaches are operating 
in a, in a, in a more financially healthy way, then that's only going to help Team USA down the road. That's only going to convert into more kids that are going to swim at college and getting sponsorship for uh, scholarship for doing it. I don't, I don't see why everybody wouldn't be doing that. Tyler, I agree a hundred percent. And uh, you know, we, we think the world of the direction of USA swimming at the same time, we want to make sure that our athletes are feeling like they are empowered to make their own decisions, whether they decide to go the club route or the professional route, NCAA swimming. We want to, we want our athletes to feel like because they've dedicated their life to the sport, that they'll have other opportunities post swimming. This is something that you've benefited from. Talk a little bit about what the pro lifestyle is like. The, the, the pro lifestyle is, it, it's, it's good in a lot of ways and, and could be improved in, in some ways too. Um, you know, it's, it's a wonderful thing to be able to swim and, and make a living doing it, right? Like that's, you know, that's kind of the dream. You know, you get to, you get to work out and get paid to do it for a living. Um, and you get to travel all over the world, you know, there's, there's a lot of benefits there, but one of the things that I realized while I was swimming is that there wasn't anybody in front of me to help me make the right decisions with how I ran my life from a finance perspective off the pool deck. And I know that there are a lot, I made basically every mistake like a young athlete could make. And that was one area where I could see you know, being better in the future. And that's, that's in fact, what I'm doing now. Um, I'm working with people in, in what I, what I define as the swimming family and that's current and former swimmers, current and former coaches, club teams themselves, families that have kids that swim, recreational swimmers, master swimmers, you know, everybody that's, that's attached to the pool, because in, in my opinion, the level of financial literacy in our sport is, is, um, depressingly low. And, and I think that our sport would really benefit from, from improving that. And so, um, you know, I actually run my own financial services practice based out of, out of Charlotte, North Carolina, um, aimed at solving that problem. And I think that I'm already seeing some changes from, the ASCA perspective, and I know that USA Swimming is making changes from their perspective as well to help um, combat this problem because it does exist and it, and it can, when solved, increase the performance that club teams are seeing. Because if coaches and clubs and swimmers are able to take more of their mental capital and devote it into getting faster or helping the kids get faster or providing more value to the parents and swimmers and so on and so forth, that's only going to help us long-term. So I think that's, um, you know, one thing that I see as being a downside to having been a professional athlete that can be improved upon, upon all of the other positives that I was able to experience while I swam professionally. I love it. I love it. Such great advice for parents too, of those athletes that are at a, a very high level. Dan, What's one thing that you wish you could tell age group parents? Um, it's a great question. Uh, probably just to 
be there to support the coaches. Obviously, be there to support your child. That's your number one goal. But just always remember the coaches 100% of the time have the best interest in the child. Um, I mean, I, I know we tell our athletes this, not all the time, but a, a few times throughout the year, whenever we seem to harp down on them about something, we say, never take anything personal. We are just doing what's best for you, what's trying to get you better as an athlete, as an individual. And, um, you know, sometimes they might go home to their parents, tell them what we did, and then we'll we'll get those emails saying, like, hey, they, they yelled at us about this. And so it, it's just kind of trust what the coaches are doing and that we we truly believe in the growing those athletes as individuals not just as our pawns in the pool um, we want them to grow up to be great people in the world so yeah and Tyler, to tag on to that just to what? tag on to that just for one second that i hear that uh I, re I resonate with that because at the end of a lot of the clinics that i run I'll have coaches come up to me and say, oh, well, like I, I teach them that. It's like, well, yeah, there's, there's nothing that I'm coaching that's going to be vastly different from where you're coaching. Like we have the same understanding. I just might have a different way of, of, um, of verbalizing that to, to a group of people that might, you know, resonate in a different way. Mm -hmm. And why that's important as it relates to a message being conveyed to an age group swimmer is that I hear that all the time. So that means that your coach, you know, your coach that we're imagining we're speaking to an age group swimmer knows what they're doing. They understand the sport, mm -hmm. <clears throat> but at the same time, they're human. They don't always have the perfectly eloquent way to relate what they understand. So just commit to the fact that over time, they're going to have that effect on you that you want and constantly second guessing them isn't going to help. For sure. Tyler, we are so appreciative of your time today. A 2012 gold medalist in London in the 200 backstroke. We really appreciate all of the insight. Thank you so much for being here today. All right, Dan, we had to add to our episode that we had with Tyler because so many people have gone so much faster since when we recorded. And we do want to talk about that 100 free right out of the gate. And this Popovici kid from Romania is really throwing it down right now. He mm -hmm. put together the fastest time in the world this year, 47.30 seconds. And what's crazy is Caleb was real fast in June at Olympic trials, 47.39. You have uh, Kolsnikov from Russia, who's 47.3. Moresi from Italy is 47.4. And... Minankov from Russia. So you got two Russians in the top five in the world right now, mm -hmm. 47 5. I think this was a race going into Tokyo where after Caleb's last performance at World Championships, it was kind of an afterthought. We thought it's Caleb Dressel versus the world. And now we're finding out really that there are five guys inside that top five who all could get their hand to the wall first. Yes, we think that a lot in sprint races, but so much attention been given to Dressel and rightfully so he's earned it. What do you think about this upstart from Romania? I'm super excited. I mean, I've been working the NAS swim camp and I've been kind of going over, uh, uh, we've been watching the legendary uh, four free relay there or the 
uh, yeah, the 400 freestyle relay from 2008. And uh, I've been saying everyone, you know, 46, six fastest time ever. Like it hasn't been touched. Uh, Dressel's the first person that since the suit era to, to be sub 47, you know, amazing stuff. But then I was like, we just had a kid go 47, three is 16 years old. Imagine what he's going to do four years from now. Like who knows? Well, 46, six is going to be an easy swim for him. Like I, who knows? I don't know. It, I'm super stoked to see what happens, especially in that four free relay. You know, it, what's really going to come down to it, I think, in this 400 free or this 100 freestyle event with Popovici, he's out incredibly fast, but mm -hmm. he is coming back. And Brett Hawk talked about this on his podcast. He is coming back incredibly well. Listen, we all know Dressel's off the block so fast. I think his reaction time is 0.59 or maybe 0.6. Mm -hmm. We know that that first 25 meters, Dressel's untouchable. Yep. Can he sustain the speed long enough? for the next, you know, 37 and a half meters to get his hand to the wall first on that back half. Is that going to be able to happen? Or is this young kid going to match speed out front early and be able to bring it home? I mean, when you watch the two races, what Dre, what uh, Caleb did at, at trials and what Popovici just did, uh, what, what are some things that you see that you, you think might decide this race? Honestly, it, um. I'm up in the air with it. Uh, I mean, that, obviously we know Caleb's one of his best events is the 50, but I mean, we know who he trains for Greg Troy being a high volume guy. And you know, Greg is saying, we got this kid that can really bring it home. We got to make sure your back half is there. So I don't know. I, I, I think if, if the race is there for Caleb, he's going to step up and I can see him getting to that 50 meters first and just holding on for dear life after that and, and touching the wall first. It's going to be close. I, I think it's going to look just like uh, we did at the end of that four free relay in 2008, but I, I think he can pull it off. I mean, we, when we think about, you know, breaking the 47 second mark, it might just take a 46, nine or faster to win the event. <laughs> You're talking about, you know, being out with incredible speed, but ultimately this event is coming down to that last 25 meters. So it should be fun. And it's a great segue to, to jump into a conversation, Dan, about the 400 medley relay and mm -hmm. much is being made about this British team. Um, you know, they, they've got four guys who are all real great specialists in that event. Talk to us a little bit about your thoughts on this 400 medley relay. When you have a breaststroker like Adam Peaty sitting in the middle of your relay, uh, you're always going to be in a good spot. But these other three guys are no joke. No, no. I mean, they definitely made some improvements since Rio. And uh, I, I'm really interested to see what happens. I mean, I, I'm just looking at uh, uh, some of the predictions that I'm seeing. And they're slotted to go a, a 327-2. That's with uh, Green Bank going 40 53-3. PD going 57-1, uh, Guy going 50.6, and Scott going 46-1, again, for that 37-2, or that 27-2. And then they have us just barely touching them out with a 326-22, with Murphy going 1-9, uh, uh, Michael Andrew going 8-1, Dressel going 9-2, and Zach Apple going 6-8 which I, I think it's pretty cool that they're throwing Zach Apple on there. Their thoughts are for Zach Apple to anchor that relay. 
When you talk about that Great Britain relay, Duncan Scott's coming home 46-1. Of course, we remember Lezak in yep. Beijing coming back 46-0. But they're being pretty conservative with Petey's breaststroke split. If you look at the projection, swim swim projection is 57.13. Petey's been 56. So yeah. if, if he's tapered well... I mean, who's to say that that's not another mismatch when you look at those projected splits that Swim Swam put together? You know, we, we also have Ryan Murphy uh, leading off 51-9. I mean, that's really fast. You're talking about yes. Caleb Dressel, you know, being at 49-2. Dressel might be 48-8. Yeah. So this is shaping up to be one of the, the closest, most exciting races of the meet. Yeah, I'm excited. I mean, obviously, I know we have a streak of always winning that event. I would love to see Britain come back and just really push us to get that win. I hope it's not an easy win for us. This 400 medley relay, Dan, does it take a world record to win the event? I don't know. Uh I don't think a world record, but I think it's going to be pretty damn close. The Russians have a good relay team put together, too, with a projected time of 328-2. They're going to be in the mix. And then Australia, who's had just an incredible last two months getting ready for this Olympic Games, they are swimming extraordinarily well. They have a projection of 328-5. And, uh, you know, there's some studs on that relay, too. You got Mitch Larkin, who's going to challenge in the 100 back for a medal. Mm -hmm. um, you got Matt Temple. He's going to swim their fly leg. And then, of course, you have the reigning Olympic champion on the end in Kyle Chalmers, 46-6 projected split. He's been 47-5 this year. And then we have the Italians, who are not that far behind either, at a 329. So, you know, we, we are really looking at a great, lineup for this 400 medley you have the home country japan um they're seated a little bit behind these teams the 330 but you can't underestimate the impact of representing your home country on your home turf um mm -hmm. you know, they have they have sato in there he's a great breaststroker uh raisuko iri leading off he's going to be a contender in the 100 back for a medal so uh it, it's going to be an interesting race for sure for sure. Yeah, I'm really excited. It's it's going to be an exhausting couple of weeks here because I'm going to be staying up super late watching these finals. <laughs> yeah, when we talk about uh, releasing this episode tonight, I think we did it at the right time to get everybody fired up. We hope that you guys all follow along on the Fitter and Faster Swim Tour Instagram and on Facebook for updates from how our clinicians are doing. We're super excited for Gunner Betts to get us started. He's going to be swimming the the 200 fly prelims for the, the Americans. Uh, Gunner is a fitter and faster clinician and we look forward to, to cheering him on and getting everybody excited about swimming again. So Dan, thanks for providing this update to our original episode. Everybody's gonna be able to catch this uh, tonight and we will get some, you will chop up some clips for us and we'll yep. have everything loaded up on our YouTube channel. So thanks everybody. Please look forward to watching the full episode with Dan, myself, and Olympian Tyler Clary. And uh, we look forward to watching the Olympic Games along with you.